main point there in each cycle. But tonight what we want to look at is verse 1 of chapter 1 through verse 1 of chapter 2. So let me read that for us and, and then pray and we'll continue on. So listen as once again God does speak to you uh, through his word. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. They shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that you would grant us understanding of this truth, that we might know something more of your heart towards your people. Your heart towards us, and help us to be faithful. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you can remember in the golden age of a radio, there were these disc jockeys that were deliberately provocative. And they were known by a particular term in our country, the shock jocks. And it's true even in our modern podcasting world that there's no small number of podcasters that have generated to themselves very much a platform, very much an audience, because they likewise are nothing more than provocative in what they say, always poking and prodding, provoking people deliberately in what they're saying. And you might know that some of even the most well-known, certainly most popular uh, preachers today are something of provocative pulpiteers. They're really good at poking people. They're really good at prodding people. They're really good at provoking people. But they seem, all of them in my estimation at least, to have a complete inability to pull people to the true heart of Jesus Christ as it's revealed in the gospel. 
Now, I tell you that because we come to a man who, who might be counted the most provocative prophet in all the Old Testament. At least as God's call falls upon him, this man Hosea. Because he's going to poke, he's going to prod, he's going to provoke God's people in ways that have left countless Christians throughout the centuries somewhat blushing at what they find in Hosea's pages. But in a way that's altogether special, altogether unique to Hosea. He not only can poke and prod and provoke, he, he, knows, how, he knows how to pull people to understand something of the depth of God's heart and love towards his people. So that's what I wanted to show you tonight, simply in the chapter before us, stretching into the first verse of chapter 2, is this simple theme of God's surprising, even shocking mercy towards his people. I would even submit to you tonight that if you haven't understood that God's mercy towards people like you and me is shocking, that you actually haven't understood the fullness of who we are before the Lord. So there's three simple ways that I want to work through this text together tonight. We'll notice in verse 1, the prophet that God called. And we'll spend just a few minutes there. The vast majority of time belongs to the vast majority of our text in that second section, which is the picture God required. And then we'll turn, however briefly, at the end to the promise God gives. And it's there that I want to squeeze out for us some of the central spiritual lessons that Hosea gives us throughout the book, but they're all foregrounded here just in this first interaction that we have uh, with the text. So the first thing we want to see is the prophet God called. If you look again at verse 1, we're told that the Lord's word came to Hosea, son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So kids, you'll notice there in verse 1, there's a bunch of kings that are listed. You'll notice that he includes not just kings in the northern kingdom, which is where Hosea ministered, but also kings in the southern kingdom. And depending on how you date certain things, that means Hosea's ministry stretched at least 30 years in the 8th century BC and could be as long as 50 years in the 8th century uh, BC, we know from these kings and their dates that it was a time of, of relative prosperity and peace as the surrounding enemies of the nation of Israel at the time, they were going through their own hardships and so it was, it was quite a good time to be an Israelite. And as so often actually happened through Israel's history, that relative prosperity actually only fueled spiritual complacency in the land. And have you ever made that connection even in your own life? That it can be times of the most noticeable prosperity. That the temptation to complacency before the Lord rises and grows. That's what was happening throughout the land here. And you'll notice we, we know really nothing, do we, about the prophet God called. We simply know what his dad's name was. And we know what his name was. His name was Hosea, which just comes from the Hebrew verb for to save. So therefore, we, we should rightly know from the beginning that there must be something about this prophet's message and this prophet's ministry that's going to uncover something about the truth of God's salvation. And that we know nothing, relatively speaking, about where Hosea came from, what his gifts were, what his vocation was. Uh, that, that's probably where it should be, shouldn't it? Because when God calls people to serve him, ministers, missionaries, even church members, 
Who we are doesn't matter, does it? It's the one that we proclaim and his word that we deliver. So this is the prophet that God called. And you'll notice uh, verse 2 gives us the picture God required. Verse 2, when the Lord spoke first through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. That word is mentioned a third time. You notice at the end of verse 2, it's a, it's a word that translations will translate variously, but as one scholar rightly says, he says it's an ugly whoredom, is the word he's thinking of, an ugly, abrasive, accusing term, which should not be narrowed or toned down. Because if you narrow it or tone it down in, in this book, you're going to miss the entire point of the book. You might know something of your Old Testament prophetic history well enough to know how God, when he calls prophets in the Old Testament, he often calls them to do something agonizing. It's even good students and children to remember that when the Lord calls his people, is it not true that even Jesus Christ himself said that anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me? It's a radical commitment that the Lord requires. And so sometimes that agonizing commitment that belonged to a prophet's ministry uh, was what we might call these kind of sign acts or prophetic parables that God meant for them to perform. So here are a few of, a couple at least, of the more well-known ones in the prophets. You can think about maybe Isaiah chapter 20, it's there that God calls the prophet Isaiah to drop his loincloth and walk around the streets naked for three straight years. Why? Because he was to be an embodied picture of the prophecy that soon Assyria would come against Egypt and the captives would be led off naked. You can think of maybe even Ezekiel chapter 4. God calls him to build this kind of crazy diorama of the siege that's going to belong to Jerusalem. And then he says, okay, Ezekiel, uh, lay on your right side for 390 days, representing a period of 390 years. And then after that period of time, you're to lay on your left side for 40 days, representing another period of, of 40 years of how God was dealing with the sin of his people. But I I think it's probably right for us to recognize that of all the prophetic parables and pictures that you'll find in the Old Testament, uh, the one here before us tonight, I think is justly the most famous. You have a prophet that is called to go take, you notice again, verse 2, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. And it's a relationship that you can take in one or two ways. It could be that God is calling Hosea to go take a wife who, when they were married, was pure before him, but inevitably would fall into adultery and infidelity. That's possible. I think it's more likely, however, especially given what comes at the end of verse 2, is that God is calling Hosea to go find a wife already with a reputation for promiscuity and, and prostitution. And why is he to do that? Well, look at the end of verse 2. Take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. 
As the prophecy of Isaiah and his, I'm sorry, Hosea and his ministry uh, continues, what we see is that the land, as I said, was given to great prosperity, yes, but spiritual complacency had come into their midst, rank idolatry, it was going out throughout the land. These places of altars, he'll later say, that were meant to be places of devotion to God have just become altars to sin, such as the iniquity that's now abounding to the Lord. And so Hosea is meant to live out in his own life, truth about who Israel is and truth about who God is in this marriage relationship. But as you would maybe think, as the text continues, he's given instruction related to Hosea's marriage. You might think that, of course, the, the story would begin to focus on Hosea's marriage, but it actually focuses on Hosea's children. And those of you that have had children and the blessing of children, you know how so often, once you have children, well, they become the central focus, don't they, of the home. And so, notice verse 3, he went and took Gomer. We'll find out more about her later. The daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore a son. You know, just last week, I was uh, talking to a young couple that had just found out that they were pregnant with their first child. And as you can so often think about these conversations for the next five or ten minutes, you know, we talked about the due date, we talked about excitements, perhaps possible worries, we talked about whether or not they were going to find out the gender of the child, did they have any names in mind, and they were grinning ear to ear, weren't they, as they were uh, talking about the child that was on the way. And I think it's probably likely that Hosea and Gomer, grinning ear to ear as the child is on the way, the son is born. The birth announcement goes out to the community there in Samaria. And wouldn't they not have been shocked to discover that this child's name was, notice verse 4, Jezreel. Now, it might not shock you like it would have shocked people in the 8th century BC in Israel, but understand that Jezreel was a place that was basically synonymous with bloodshed. You could almost say it in a different way, uh, call his name bloodshed because it was there you can return to the story later on tonight second kings chapter 10 that this old king named jehu he, he slaughtered the offspring of a, of a wicked king named ahab and that's actually something the lord commanded him to do execute the offspring of ahab but as the story continues what actually happened in jehu's heart is that he went about that work with nothing more than bloodlust and bloodthirst to such a degree that Jezreel was now this infamous place of bloodshed in the land and the people of Israel had never asked for repentance for what Jehu had done. And so that's why uh, the purpose of the name, notice verse 4 continues, call his name Jezreel for just in a little while. I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. My kids, if you, if you think about uh, the word there, bow, if you think about a bow, uh, you know, what comes to mind? It's probably, you know, a bow and an arrow. Certainly at that time, a bow is synonymous as a weapon of war. And what God is saying with the name of this first child given to Hosea is that he's going to leave Israel defenseless. He's going to remove the protection from Israel such that when the nation of Assyria soon comes a few years after Hosea dies, it's going to be there in the valley of Jezreel that they fall before their enemies. 
Well, time passes. We don't know how much time. 12 months, 18 months, 36 months. Gomer is found to be pregnant again. And this time it's a daughter. And as the birth announcement goes out throughout the community, the name of this child does nothing to quell the concern that Hosea doesn't know how to name his children properly. Because you'll notice this one's called what? In verse 6, call her name No Mercy. The eldest son is Jezreel. We could maybe say the oldest son's name is No Kingdom. The second one, No Mercy. Why? Well, look as the text continues. Verse 6, For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Hosea, walking through the streets with his family, with his wife, with his two children, nothing more than this prophetic, living, embodied parable of God's covenant cursing that Israel deserves. His fatherly discipline that they deserve. No mercy. No kingdom. And as if, if that twisting of the knife of his discipline of his people wasn't enough, notice what the northern kingdom hears about his plan for the southern kingdom in verse 7. He says, But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. If you know anything about the story of Assyria's fall upon the promised land, they took the northern kingdom relatively easily. But the southern kingdom they couldn't take. And the people of Judah, they didn't even take up arms against Assyria. It was the Lord fighting for them. And isn't it its own picture of salvation? That it's not by might or spirit, or sorry, not by might or strength, declares the Lord. But of course, it's by his sovereign working in the spirit for his people. So this is the picture God requires. Go marry a prostitute. Your first son, no kingdom. Your next child, a daughter, no mercy. And then time passes. Again, we don't know how long. Maybe 18 months. Maybe four years. Another son is born. And this one gets another striking name. Look at verse 9. The Lord said, call his name, not my people. So imagine if you were walking through the streets in Samaria at this time, perhaps a visitor from a different city or town within the northern kingdom, and you come across in the streets this well-known prophet named Hosea. And as so often happens, you begin to introduce yourselves to each other, talking about your wife and, and your children. And he says, okay, there's, there's my, my wife. Her, her name's Gomer. Uh, you see my oldest son, he's playing there across the street over by that shop. Well, his, his name is No Kingdom. And you think, well, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> then, you, then you look, well, but, but running just next to him, there, there's my daughter, no mercy. And you start to realize, well, maybe he's actually saying something to me with the names of these children. And then he says, and if you see Gomer, she's holding our newest, our third child, not my people. And for an Israelite, it's that final name that would have struck a central chord of terror. Because what is a central promise to all of God's covenant grace, but I will be your God and you will be my people. And what does he say with this name? Verse 9 continues, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your 
God. Surely it would have struck an ordinary heart there in Israel when they would have heard these things. It actually, I think, is alluding to something that the text makes quite clear to us. If you notice the, the first child born there in verse 3, it is born to Hosea, a son. And then the next two children, the daughter and then the second son, it doesn't refer to born to Hosea. I think it's actually alluding in a not-so-subtle way to us that in all likelihood, the daughter and the second son were products of Gomer's promiscuity, to which she would be eventually enslaved in chapters to come. So it's actually a literal fact, perhaps, that Hosea is saying, that child is not mine. But it's underscoring the spiritual reality. This people, because of their lusts, idolatries, sins and unfaithfulness, not my people. They've gone after other gods. And so if you know anything about the story of Israel, all of these things came true. These covenant curses, this picture that God required. Now we get to verse 10 and 11, even the first verse of chapter 2, and we want to see now the promise that God gives. Because at this point, of course, in the ministry of Hosea, that the situation would have been altogether bleak. It would have been altogether barren. And it's in such a context, isn't it, that the Lord's mercy loves to interrupt things. Uh, that the promise of God loves to invade places of difficulty and such sin. And, and that gospel invasion, you'll notice, verse 10, it comes with what we even talked about in John last week as the gospel conjunction of yet. Do you see that? No kingdom, no mercy, no people. Yet. Yet. And notice five promises that follow in verse 10 through 11. First, he promises restoration of the people. He's going to undo all the covenant curses that belong to his beloved people. Verse 10 begins, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Uh, you might know that that's nothing more than fulfilling the promise made to Abraham, that his offspring would be like the sand on the seashore. Like the stars in the sky, the second promise is one of renewal of the covenant. Look at the end of verse 10. And in place of where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And in verse 11, he promises reconciliation of the division of the kingdoms. He says, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. He promises, fourthly, reinstatement of the king. They shall appoint for themselves one head, and lastly, he promises a return to the land. They shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Because after all, Jezreel wasn't originally this place of bloodshed. It actually is a place that just means God plants. And what does God so often do in his surprising and even shocking mercy? Is plant his people in a place of restoration and reconciliation. So he's portraying before our very senses, isn't he, the reality that he is the spurned husband. God is. He is the zealous lover that's going to pursue his people that have prostituted themselves in their sin. If you've ever been to a literature class, there's something of a, of a literature law. Uh, students, you may have even had a literature class in the last few semesters that taught you something like this. It's a, a law that basically says, show, don't tell. Because, of course, good storytelling 
brings you into the experience more than it just tells you. This is what you're supposed to experience, right? In a way, these prophetic parables, don't they? They bring us into the experience. We're going to discover even more of it, Lord willing, in two weeks' time as we think about chapters 2 and 3. But the relationship between Hosea and Gomer and the naming of the children, it's this prophetic parable that's meant to show us three things, at least. I want to show you these three things as we come to a close. The first of which is that Hosea shows us sin's harlotry. It's a word that, of course, perhaps you haven't necessarily attached to the nature of sin. Because you can use other words that the Bible would use for describing and defining sin. Lawlessness. Disobedience. Rebellion. But have you ever thought about how the Old Testament, more often than you might realize, speaks about sin as nothing more than spiritual adultery? That you have been attached to the Lord in a loving relationship, just as it is between a husband and a wife. And to sin against this God is nothing more than harlotry. Certainly it should strike our conscience that God in his sovereign inspiration has decided that one thing we need to know through this picture about his heart towards his people. That he is a spurned husband who is understandably jealous for his people's faithfulness. That even in our own sin, of course, what we deserve is to not be in the kingdom. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve to be counted among the people. Which leads even to the second point. It shows us the Lord's jealousy. Not just sin's harlotry, but the Lord's jealousy. You know, here at Redeemer, children, you, you know, the first Sunday of every month, it's our pattern to recite the Ten Commandments together. So I hope many of you, if you've done that throughout the years, you, you could recite, perhaps for your parents on the way home, the Third Commandment. The Third Commandment is you shall not make for yourself the carved image. And you know there's, there's reason, there, there's a rationale that the Lord attaches to that command. What is it? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Is not every spouse jealous for the faithfulness of the other spouse? Is there not incredible hurt that even comes when one spouse has been unfaithful? The Lord is underscoring for us here what it means that he has holy jealousy for his people. He cannot tolerate rivals. He cannot tolerate their unfaithfulness. His jealousy demands that his righteous judgment be poured out upon them. So how then do we get surprising, even shocking mercy? Well, that's the third thing. Final thing. Not just sin's harlotry, not just the Lord's jealousy, but I want to show you how Hosea shows us Christ's fidelity. Maybe it's no accident that the Lord Jesus talks about himself as a bridegroom who's come for a bride. And when he walks through life, what is he doing but being faithful in every place where his people have been faithless? What is he doing when he hangs at the cross of Calvary but taking into his very heart those same covenant curses? He's counted as one who doesn't belong in the kingdom. He's counted as one who doesn't deserve mercy. He's counted as one who's not numbered among God's people. 
on the chastisement of the covenant falls upon him. And then you look to him. What do you find? Well, you're named as one of the children of the living God. You who deserve far worse are granted these green pastures of hope in the Lord's mercy. Because for people like you and me, who deserve nothing but his wrath, do not feel yourself even tonight a little bit more shocked that mercy has come to you through a king whose name is Jesus, the true bridegroom. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have given your promise to us, promises that, of course, are yes and amen in your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us of our sin, we pray. Help us to understand its depths evermore, to feel its weight evermore, and even through the application of the Spirit's mercy of Christ to our hearts. I find that burden lifted this night, that we might know what it means to find redeeming love in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.